0: Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he
1: is, Tristan Almada. Today's guest is a man who will make you slow down, Think and listen to what your brain and body are trying to tell you. This week, I spoke with James Goodwin, Dr. James Goodwin, author of Supercharge Your Brain, How to Maintain a Healthy Brain Throughout Your Life. And I loved this book. In fact, it's my favorite book for 2022. Now, it's a little different because it focuses on what you should eat, the things you should do for your brain to keep it healthy, healthy you should exercise. It's so much research in a book, so it's not for everyone. But this podcast is for everyone. Listen in. You're going to love it. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success magazine podcast. And today I'm honored to have Dr. James Goodwin. This this guys, every everyone listening in, this is the best book I've read this year. And you know how much I read. So I'm honored to have you on, Dr. Goodwin.
0: Um, Tristan, it's a pleasure and it's also a privilege to be able to uh, get some of the ideas out there. This is stuff that everybody should know and very few people have got access to it. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book.
1: Man, I as I so this is my second time reading it and I'm halfway through the second time and I'm, I'm catching so much the second time. I, as as any reader tells you, it's like, oh, oh, man. So I'm thinking more along the lines of this is, this is required reading for everyone in the world that we live in, because it's almost like a manual of how your brain and your body work and how you need to work it. It's almost like, sure. let's think of technology, James, because I'm a, I'm a tech guy. If I, if I get a piece of software and I don't know how to use it, it's like, well, what's the use? Sure. And and I have a. I feel like the the world that we live in. We have this amazing body and mind, but we're just kind of going through the days and not even knowing what the hell's happening.
0: One observation I've made, Tristan, is uh, if I stopped a hundred people on the on the streets of San Antonio, and I said to them, "Tell me three things on how to look after your heart." Most people could come up with something. They'd say, lower your cholesterol, slim down your waist, do a bit of exercise, don't eat pork chops too often, all the rest of it. And we all love pork chops. (laughs) And if then I said to them, give me three things about how you should look after your brain, because that's many times more important than your heart. People would say maybe do a few games, but puzzles and crosswords but they wouldn't know really how to go about it and it's such a tremendous organ the complexity of it as you've read in the book it, it, it amazes me every day 86 billion cells another 86 billion support cells to look after them the connections for one person's brain would go to the moon and back And some of the cells in the brain have got up to 200,000 connections. So it defies belief, really. Let's look after it.
1: It does. I think it's super clear while the reader is reading this one that we still have no clue as to how the brain fully functions. (laughs) We're not even close, right?
0: That was a famous quote from the Brain Institute in Seattle, Chris Christoph, who said, uh, we barely understand the brain of a worm. And, And the worm he was talking about has a few hundred... Brain cells and uh, several hundred connections, and that's about it.
1: Well, man, you did an amazing job with this one. I hope everyone listening to it picks it up because it's just brilliant how you pieced everything together. and I want to start with what scared me the most, because the
0: part... didn't scare you just... <laughs>
1: <laughs> There was a part that I was like, "No way, this is not true in a good way. obviously, I believe it. but bugs in the brain. I was like, "What?" That was
0: it's a knockout. That's a real knockout.
1: Please, please explain that to us. Where, Where do we start with explaining that?
0: We start with explaining that inside the dark cavernous recesses of that gurgling mess in our large intestine. And I'm sure all your, all your audience knows what I'm talking about. There's a huge pharmaceutical factory that's producing the best medicine we ever had. And also, it's talking to the brain through a vast nerve that comes up there um, called the vagus nerve, the wandering nerve. It wanders from the gut up to the brain. And uh, 90% of the messages are going up to the brain from the gut. And we all know that if we get upset, our digestion suffers. We get acid. We get butterflies in the stomach. Mm -hmm. When we're afraid or threatened by something, our insides churn around. There's this massive connection between the gut and the brain. And I'll just give one fact for your uh, listeners. One of the most important hormones or transmitter substances in the brain which helps to communicate across all those cells is called serotonin and you think the serotonin will be made in the brain because it's so important it's the happy hormone uh uh-uh. uh that serotonin 90% of it is made by the guts in our bowel And the serotonin enters the bloodstream, goes to the brain and makes us feel good. So if you stress out the bugs in your bowel, you're going to mess with the brain. And the research is absolutely straightforward on this. Those bugs down there control how you feel, that's your emotions and your mood. It controls your behavior and it also controls the way you think.
1: That's what freaked me out. By the way, oh, that, yeah. was, that was the freak out because you said we all have this, this set of foods that we gravitate to. And actually, it freaked me out so much. I remember where I was when I was reading and I was like, no way. This <laughs> is, this, y- that's y- how y- bad y- it was. You were in Guaro
0: Canelo's hot dog emporium, <laughs> were you?
1: <laughs> no, I was. <laughs> thank God I was, I was in Boston working out at the gym cuz i had to go speak there and and i was i was in the middle of reading it i was like i had to call my wife i was like honey did you know this did you know and the thing that the thing that was shocking to me was when you said that certain groups of people have have these foods that they consume routinely and if you need to if you want to switch those bugs over to those healthier bugs it's a process it doesn't happen overnight it's like hey you've got to do no. you've got to do this and this and this and then and then slowly it'll yeah, change can you take me um, through that process
0: i, I, I can um, one of the stunning pieces of research i came up with um, had found that 75 percent of all the food on sale in the united states and britain where i am at the moment comes from five animals and 12 plants That's it. Five animals. You can probably name them pork, beef, chicken, turkey, whatever. You could probably name them. And yet, if you go to the uh, food markets of New York in the 1850s, there were over 300 kinds of apples on sale, just apples, 300 kinds. Now, I tested that because I went into a Whole Foods when I was in New York and uh, spoke to the guy on produce and said, how many types of apples have you got? And he proudly boasted that he got 12. And I said, did you know, you know, over 100 years ago, you'd have had 300 kinds. And he could hardly believe that. So we have this very, very narrow diet, woefully yeah. narrow. If you go back even further, if you, let's say um, 6,000 years, 7,000 years ago, just when we'd started farming, um, scientists have dug up the waste heaps in the Neolithic farms. They found 300 kinds of plants that people were eating. 300 kinds
1: Whoa. of Whoa.
0: Okay. Now, what it means is with this narrow diet, we're starving the bugs in our in our gut. The bugs in our, our gut get there as we're born. As we pass out of the birth can, mother's birth canal, we pick up a whole load of bugs in our mouth from our mothers. When we're feeding on the, at our mother's milk, all the bacteria from the skin are being swallowed with the milk. We, we touch things with our hands. We put our fingers into our mouth. All that builds up the bugs in the gut. It takes about three years, I think, for it to uh, settle down. Then there's the big test. You've then got to start looking after them. And the way to look after them is to eat this massively wide array of foods. So the wider you can make your diet, the more you're feeding those guts. If you eat something like, I don't know, um, some candy, uh, all of the food value in that candy is absorbed up here in the uh, higher in the in the small intestine, mm-hmm. by the time those food remains get down to the bowel, there's nothing for the bugs to live on, and so they're starved. And if you are having a rough time in your life, your business is in a bad way, your marriage is in a bad way, uh, your social life is a wreck, all that stress is perceived by the brain goes down the vagus nerve and that stresses out the bugs as well. Even if you don't sleep properly, if you don't sleep properly, the bugs never get a rest. They never sleep either. So we've got to eat food, which is high in fiber. We're talking about things like oatmeal. That's got lots of good soluble fiber in or whole wheat bread or, um, or vegetables or fruits. Uh, as many different types as we can. They've all got bugs in them, by the way. Um, for example, most of the bacteria in an apple are in the core yes. and in the
1: skin. I remember reading that from what you said. I was like, Hold on. I so, what you do? There, don't then.
0: slice the apple down from top to bottom. Slice it sideways, sideways, and just take out the seeds in the middle of the apple. Then eat the whole thing, including the core. I mean, you hardly notice. I'm <laughs> the way I eat an apple, and I changed it.
1: it I changed it because noticed. of you. I changed it because wow. of you. So, well, that's, thank that, you.
0: That's um brilliant news, um Tristan. Uh, so, by feeding, I. Uh, bugs in this way and by leading a a lifestyle which doesn't stress them out and it's all in the book you can build up this resilience this uh, this um, ability to resist aging and uh, all all that uh, benefit goes up to the brain either in the hormones that the bugs produce or in the immunity they reduce the inflammation in our body and and Maybe later in the book, you'll ask me about, in the interview about the book, you'll, you'll, you'll ask me about that.
1: Yeah, well, I think let's hit into part of that because most of our audience are business owners, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, um, they're, they own different types of businesses. And with that, you mentioned stress, right? You're like, hey, if you've got stress at work or you've got stress at home, some of that can be regulated through what we're eating and what we're actively doing. Sure. And, and I don't think we always correlate that. And I, I interviewed—I don't know if you know Jim Quick.
0: Yes, um, I. He, yes, I do know. I know. I know. I don't know him personally, of course, but I know the name. Yeah.
1: So I'm going to connect you to Jim because the first person I thought of when you were talking about all this was Jim because he's always talking about the brain, the brain. But you bring the substance part of what he talks about. Right?
0: Sure.
1: So you sure. guys would you guys would have a blast together. And sounds like a good team. <laughs> oh man, it it would be an amazing team. So a dream I'm thinking, team. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, so there's a lot more to this because we're 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 also chemical beings and we don't a lot of us don't fully process that. It's like, hey, there's stuff happening inside of us. And it's either making us look at the current world that we're in, in a more, in a good way, but opportunistic, opportunistic way, or, oh, you know what? I just don't feel like doing, or I'm just kind of feeling sad today, or along those lines as well. And I don't think we talk enough about what we consume and how we treat our our bodies and minds really affects our work. And you do that in the book. That's what was... That's why I was scared, man. I was reading the the food bugs in the brain and food for thought. And I'm going, damn, this is this is why this book is so important. By the way, guys, the book is supercharge your brain. And it's just that's the scary part, man.
0: Our Western way of life just does us no favors. It's almost like some ghastly experiment of sleeplessness, poor diet, uh, low levels of activity, lots of stress. And incrementally, day by day, this has an influence on how fast we age, which can be slowed down and can even be reversed, Uh, and also how our brain changes. The good news for all those people running businesses is you can lead your life in such a way that is not onerous, not difficult. In fact, many of, much of it is uh, pleasurable in such a way that you keep your brain sharp over many, many years. And no new kid on the block is going to turn up and be quicker than you or sharper than you or you know make better decisions than you because you're getting on in years. We can actually slow that down. There was um, one example I'd like to give your uh, listeners. And that's um, an experimenter called um, Kirkson in the University of Pittsburgh. And he got two groups of people, 60 in each. They were aged 45 and over. And for a year, one group exercised and the other one did not. The exercise was something like jogging every day or cycling every day. It wasn't a running a marathon, but it was steady, aerobic, you know, heart pumping exercise. So the others mm-hmm. didn't do any they just did stretching, exercises, flexibility, and so on. And at the end of that one year, he imaged a part of the brain called the hippocampus. It's uh, a big sensor for learning and memory. And he found that over that year, the exercise group had increased the size of their hippocampus by 2%. It was bigger with more cells wow. in it. Now that actually is a 4% increase it's because the other group, Theirs dropped by 2%. Size of their hippocampus dropped by 2%. And that's a natural process. Every year, we lose 1% in the size of our brain, 1% to 2%. He had reversed it simply by doing some exercise. And it isn't every day. I think the recommended um, dose of exercise uh, that's given out by government's on both sides of the water. It's a 150 minutes of aerobic exercise a day and two periods of resistance training. That's uh, lifting weights. It's actually designed to increase your uh, muscle tone. What we now know is that when you exercise, your muscle cells produce proteins, things like cathepsin B and irisin. These are two proteins that enter the blood when we exercise. They go to the brain and they switch on another chemical called BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor. Do you know what that does? Generates new brain cells. We never knew that. So that when you're exercising, you're not only looking after your body and building muscle and staying fit, you're also building the brain and keeping your mind fit. And even better, we know that this process goes on every decade of our life. It doesn't end as you get older. It's there right until your 90s. There's this idea that the brain was maybe like um, a tank of gasoline. And as you went through life's journey, you used it all up. But by the time you reach 70, 80, 90, you're running on empty.
1: Mm-hmm. We now
0: know that that is completely false. And that by doing simple things wow. like exercise and diet, good sleep, social life, rest, and all these things. We can make sure the brain is producing new cells. You can keep it young. And I I didn't know all this stuff when I set out to write the book, uh, just and it was a journey for me as well. And that was one of the big knockouts. If I do a bit of exercise and I do lots of other things, that are wow. pretty easy to do, including having sex more regularly. You may have read that chapter. That
1: was you know, almost my favorite chapter, brother. <laughs> there's, there's, so there's one that scared me and then one that made me happy. There you go.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I gave my neighbor a copy of the book and uh, he said, Can I have two? It's about three weeks into reading it. And I said, You want another copy? He said, Yeah, I just want my wife to read chapter seven to sex.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> That's funny man I like that. So tell me did you you mentioned it a little bit and I want to know since since you've written the book have you have you researched more along the lines of the proteins that we produce during exercise and those proteins that are present with with people that have dementia or or people that have any mental challenges as they grow older is there a correlation there? That you can talk about?
0: Well, there is. And it's this. a Dementia is a condition normally underpinned by some disease like Alzheimer's disease, produces this condition called dementia. It is the most age-related condition known to medicine. So by the time the population of the United States gets to 90, one in three people are going to have a diagnosis of dementia. Whoa. And that that runs in tandem with a decline in uh, physical exercise physical activity and muscle tone and the condition of our body so it appears there's almost a mechanism within the body to make us less motivated to do exercise as we get older there was a professor in florida And uh, he said, um, as you get older, activity falls off a cliff. I thought thought it's probably a very pertinent observation. You know that as we get older, it's easier to get fatter and rounder and and do less exercise. And they run together. So as you're becoming more inactive and you're doing less exercise and your motivation to move is going downhill, that's Mm -hmm. having an inflammatory effect on the brain. And as a result of that, neurodegeneration, a process of loss of cells of the brain, sets in. And as we get older and we exercise, we can still produce those proteins, but they're not as vigorous as they are uh, in our youthful years. The fact is, though, that it, it, it matters little. Um, the secret of all this, uh, Tristan, is to put our foot on the throat of aging, put the old boot down on it and and slow it right down. And it wouldn't surprise me uh, in the next 10 to 20 years, if uh, we understand fully how to slow down aging uh, until almost zero. I don't believe you'll stop it uh, completely. Some do, but I personally, I don't. because of the laws of physics, there's a thing called entropy as things wind down uh, w- with time. So I put the yeah. ceiling on most people getting older to about 120 uh, years of age. Uh, there are scientists, as uh, David Sinclair at Harvard University. Uh, he's researching a, a drug. Uh, one of them was found in red wine. It's called resveratrol, um, mm-hmm. which will actually slow down aging and, uh, and make us live longer, but not just live longer, live better. They found in mice that uh, if you calorie restrict them, um, so that's keep their nutrients the same, but reduce their calories. Mm-hmm. They live for 30% longer, which in our case would be about 20 years, 30 years.
1: Whoa. And there's
0: a 50% less chance of disease because what you're doing is lowering inflammation. And inflammation is the root of all aging and the root of all age-related disease. That's, uh, that's really the story.
1: So with inflammation, what foods or what activities have you, have you researched that reduce the inflammation for the human body?
0: Well, first a word about inflammation. We're all familiar with getting a bee sting on our finger or burning our hand, and it goes red, swollen, painful. That's because the immune system is producing substances to um, counter the injury, blood flow increases, white cells make a beeline for the injury. Normally that subsides, Mm -hmm. but with aging, it subsides less. And also uh, our DNA suffers from... Uh, oxidative stress that is uh, uh, as the cells produce energy, they fling off um, chemicals, which are looking for, um, particles in the cell called electrons, they go around mugging the cells or or the proteins and DNA in the cells to get these electrons. And as a result of that, the immune system declines. Inflammation is not regulated any longer. It doesn't subside. And uh, as we age, Mm. certain substances in the blood are more common. So uh, Tristan, I'm 70 If you got someone 17 next to me and you did some blood work on them and some blood work on me, you'd find their cholesterol is lower. Interleukin six is lower. Fibrinogen is lower. Lots of these inflammatory molecules at 17 are there, but few. If you looked at me, you'd find naturally because of age, there's more of them. And these inflammatory molecules go around the body, causing havoc, especially with the brain. And they suppress the growth of new brain cells and they accelerate the destruction of the existing brain cells. So the message for your listeners is lead a low inflammation lifestyle. And it's not difficult to do if if there's lots of things you can do which are pleasurable, which reduce inflammation in the body. More sex is one. Better sleep is another. Uh, Moderate alcohol drinking is another. Smoking, no. Uh, sm- smoking tobacco, recreational drugs um, are, uh, are are a big no-no for the brain, I'm afraid. But moderate drinking, what's that? Well, both sides of the water, your medical advisors, the CDC, will say one drink for women, two drinks for men. I know that sounds unfair, but is, there's a physiological reason for that. And um, uh, it, if you have one drink, as a woman, and two drinks a day as a man, okay, mm-hmm. that's beneficial to the brain. That moderate activity is beneficial to the brain. The anti-drink people, and the Puritans amongst us, and the health fanatics, the health fascists mm-hmm. as I call them, they want to hear that. Right? Oh, they fascists. don't want to hear it. What? Let ordinary people enjoy themselves and have a drink. <laughs> I, I think the thing is, once you've had one drink, it leads to another and then another. But you know, if it's my birthday and I go out and have several too many, that won't matter. Yeah. The odd occasion, you know, your wedding anniversary or your partner's anniversary, um, your birthday, uh, you know, you, 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 win a, you win a bet at the bookies and you, the horse comes in first and you go out and celebrate. Oh, you have a business success. That is not going to hurt you once in a while. Nice. It's going to hurt you when you do it every day or every week so the so, overconsumption yeah. of alcohol and we brits got it especially the scots bless the scots but they drink like fish you <laughs> know uh, and also people in the city of london the financial district the wall street yeah uh, of this world they drink heavily uh, i mean I, I used to get the water taxi down the thames from my office building and mm-hmm. um I joined all the many commuters on that water taxi down the River Thames mm-hmm. and they, who'd been working in the city of London. Most of them had had a bottle of wine by the time I got on. A whole bottle. And no. then they were going to have more when they got in to have their dinner in the evening. You know, you do that every day. You know, it's you can do it if you wish. I'm not here to get righteous and tell people this is how you should lead your
1: life. No, not I'm at all. I'm just trying
0: to say, yeah, I'm just trying to say to people, yeah. just be moderate about the way in which you lead your life.
1: Well, then I you'll think be, you're, uh, you, yeah. You're using science. That's the thing, man. You're saying, hey guys, look, you can do whatever you want, but um, yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is the research.
0: Yeah, and over COVID, science has got a bad name because of the way totally. the scientists have over exaggerated their messages overinterpreted their data uh overprojected on mathematical modeling and the politicians have got a hold of this and they've made a they've made a well here it's the same political versus you know political arguments democrat versus republican here it will be labor versus tory you know they they made a mess of it so but what i would say to you is sensible science will tell us about our human condition and the world in which we live, from which we can draw some cer- certain conclusions.
1: That's true, man. And you bring up a good point as far as science getting a bad name through, through the pandemic. And I think because we're, we're in a culture, at least in the United States, and I'm not sure about um, England or, or Great Britain, but here we're not allowed to say one thing right now and then two weeks later say hey guys we actually did more research and we found something else and it changed and and people don't fully understand how things can change and people can progress and ideas can grow for some reason we're still blamed for what we originally thought it was and that's a problem man and so
0: i agree with that and um The great thing about science, to me, is that science can be proven wrong, and it's not something that's handed down, you know, by some religious figure on a on in in concrete, and it can't it can never be changed. We can always change what we know. In fact, there was a very famous famous Cambridge professor who said, uh, "The most joyous, joyous days of my life are when one of my." Uh, researchers in my laboratory proved me to be incorrect through evidence. That's humility. And there's a lot of scientists around who, mm. who don't have that humility and they won't reverse their, their uh, decisions. I'd say to you listeners, don't lose mm. faith. Don't lose faith in science. I was at a conference once in um, Salzburg in Austria. Um, Bruno Velas was the, uh, one of the speakers. And and uh, he stood up and said, um, We we have a a, a precious resource because science is the key to the future health of humanity, Uh, Mm -hmm. and that is absolutely true. It's what the politicians do with science that wrecks it. And there's nobody being made more angry than I have by the way in which people have seized on limited bits of evidence and made a whole story out of it, a narrative. and that, to me, is entirely wrong. That is not what science is, uh, is all about. I
1: agree. I agree. And, and I think that the more we dive into science, people not being in the science world like me, uh, we find that science is a, is a community that, that works very well together. And, and it was to me, it was apparent with... I, we just interviewed uh, Dr. Lou Inyaro. He's uh-huh. the one that discovered nitric oxide, um, how it, how it
0: substance. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He was, he was an amazing human being is, and his discovery is great, but his book and, and interview really helped me understand how beautiful scientists are and how they need each other. This is not like a one man show. It's, it's a real community.
0: It is. It's, uh, it, it's better teamwork than the Buccaneers. <laughs>
1: wow and that's that's pretty good man
0: and our teamwork i know they i know they threw it this year but uh it's it's right it's fantastic teamwork and um uh, i will counter that by saying there's no such thing as scientific consensus scientists agree but science is all about making a finding and then testing that and then using the result of that and then testing that. Uh, And it's called the process of falsification. Some people like politicians will not put up with the falsification test. They will not put up with people producing evidence that shows that ideas are wrong. Scientists will. And that if they're good scientists, they will. And that is the way that um, we we make uh, progress.
1: You have a lot of research in this book and and I loved going through some of, I was like, hey, where'd you get that? And that, dude, you, you, how long did it take you to write this book?
0: The whole process from um, being asked to write the book by Random House in London and coming out onto the bookshelves, you know, in Hudson News or whatever, that took two years. But writing the book took about 14 months. Okay. And nice. it took over my life for anyone thinking of writing a book it's not what you think <laughs> you, you have good days and you have bad days and you've written something and suddenly you find out a piece of scientific evidence that questions what you've said so then you go back and you have another look at it but what i found uh the hard part was making the science readable from these hugely complex, sophisticated, technical scientific papers that I was reading to putting it into a form that not only was intelligible to the ordinary non scientist but was enjoyable to read. And that's why I threw all the f- stories in. For example, I threw in a story about Lord Nelson, Admiral Nelson at the Battle of uh, Trafalgar in 1805, and it changed European politics and global events for the next 100 years. What's that got to do with the brain? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then there was another one, uh, which, which was Chris Talley, a nutritionist in California, who threw mm. one of his friends out of an aircraft without a parachute.
1: Yes. He, he, that was
0: the most astonishing story. Actually, of course, he wasn't thrown out, figure of speech. No. He, he, he jumped out without a parachute. And Tell me that okay. story.
1: Tell me that story because you measured or, well, not you, but uh, I Chris. think it was it was vitamin b6, b6. That was, yeah that was measured yeah. tell me that story because that was uh, that was another one that i picked up the phone and called my wife i was like honey did you know this this is crazy
0: Look, i had an interview with chris talley um because he was a nutritionist of jan stein the uh, the woman i mentioned earlier and uh he, he said uh, do you know about luke eight and I said, I do not. And he said, well, he was a friend of mine. And I wanted at the time to find out what happened to the stress vitamins in the body. Uh, if you put somebody in the most extreme stress. And Luke was a skydiver. So I asked him, would you jump out of an aircraft without a parachute on? He said, how am I going to land, man? He said, easy. <laughs> this is this was uh, in Simi, California, the... Um, the Big Sky Ranch, movie ranch. And they, they put out a net 100 foot by 100 foot, you know, in day glow orange and red, so you could see it from a long way away. And then at 25,000 feet, because he needed three minutes of free fall to find the net. Oh, my God. I could not believe that one. So um, Chris Talley, the nutritionist, that had been taking, doing his blood work leading up to this. And they they had one or two runs at it with a parachute. So the pilot knew where to put the light on. He knew where to jump out. He knew where to look for the net and all the rest of it. And (laughs) they did these runs and he was taking the blood work all the time. And in the aircraft, you can watch this on YouTube. uh, Luke Aiken told me, he said, uh, I've got my parachute there. We're approaching the uh, drop zone. Do I put the parachute on? (laughs) <laughs> stuff it and he just jumped out without the parachute and skydived down, found the net he said my only disappointment was I didn't land dead centre I landed, I landed a bit to one side but then Chris Talley ran up to him to collect his 19 tubes of blood yeah. and when he got the, the numbers back every single stress vitamin in the body had been zeroed out
1: That's crazy. And what were those? Yeah, B6 B6 and what
0: else? B6 is the big one. Vitamin C uh, is the other one. His stress hormones were like through the roof the catecholamines, the adrenaline, noradrenaline, you know, the cortisols. He was surprised to find cortisol there. That was because that's a long term stress hormone. You know, when you're going through a really bad patch in life and you can't sleep, cortisol goes up. So why should the cortisol be up? <laughs> because Luke said, oh man, he said, I'd been worrying about this for two to three weeks before I jumped out the aircraft. <laughs> and uh, that, that taught me a lot, that the conditions of our life and the chemistry of our body can do a huge amount to help us to counter aging, to reduce aging, look after the brain, and not only that, feel better and think better and be better in life.
1: That to me, that was one of the best stories in the book because yeah. it clearly shows. I mean, there's there, there it is like you jump, you're at the bottom, and it just shows you exactly what you need to counteract the daily stresses.
0: Yeah. Chris Talley even gave me the, the the stress meal, which was a grass fed beef. Uh, bell peppers, different kinds of nuts to replace it. So Chris has got, Chris actually is no mean nutritionist. He's very, very good. He at one time advised Tom Brady. He's he advises the NFL and he does the seals nutrition program in the DOD in, uh, in the Pentagon. So this dude, wow. Chris Talley, precision works, is it called precision works or precision nutrition You'll find it on Google, but he is the number Take one man for, uh, for nutrition. But, uh, yeah, and I asked him loads of questions uh, about, about the brain and, and nutrition. And one of his big ones was omega-3 fatty acids that you find in cold water fatty fish like uh, sardine, mackerel, cod, hake, salmon, all this stuff, right? those omega-3s are absolutely vital for the brain. So if I was to take a human brain, dry it out completely so there was no water in there, mm-hmm. of the material left, omega-3 will be between 60 and 80% of that brain. No way. Yeah, but we don't have enough in the diet. Now, I have a great expression, which is you can't untoast what's been toasted. right you can't untoast what's been toasted and you can't unevolve what's evolved and the brain grew to where it is present human size and complexity on the back of three things meat fish varied plants are the big three and it's that fish diet that over evolution has helped to build up the human brain to its complexity but actually just the It isn't just a one-trick pony of omega-3. It's the ratio of omega-3 to another one called omega-6. Now, when we were in the caves hunting animals, our diet was one-to-one. For every one part of omega-3 we ate, we swallowed one part of Mm omega-6. Do you know what it is now? No. The ratio is... 20 of six to only one part of omega-3. Whoa. In the, so it's 20 to one in the wrong direction. So we've got to try and get the six and the three level, at least level. And the problem is all the delicious foods of life, all the ready-made meals, convenience foods, fast food, fried food. Um, food in packets in supermarkets, in the microwave and, you know, supper's over. All that is packed full of plant oils. And guess what's in plant oils? Omega-6. In fact, a humble almond has got 2,000 parts of six to one of three. So what you've got to try and do is to level it up. Well, you do it in two ways. Eat less ready-made meals and eat more cold water fatty fish. So four, four ounces of salmon or herring or anchovies or caviar, (laughs) caviar will do it.
1: Four servings,
0: four servings a week will level it up for most
1: people. I love that. Now let's talk about sex on the brain. I mean, there's, we could talk about every chapter, but let's just get to the good one. (laughs) I mean, the other ones were great too, but Tell me about sex on the brain, the research that you you've done.
0: Well, I came across a science paper by uh, two U.S. scientists. It had to be the U.S., didn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> two U.S.
0: scientists, two brilliant researchers, and it had to be Ivy League. It was a, it was Princeton in okay. 2010, and they they were looking at uh, rat behavior and um, and a process called neurogenesis in the brain, giving birth to new brain cells, and. What they found was if you got um, two strange rats, a male rat and a female rat uh, in season, right? And you put the male into the cage, they were both of them stressed out. This encounter, strange male, strange female, it, it stressed both of them out. But it won't surprise the women readers or listeners uh, <laughs> of this podcast that the male never refused the opportunity to have sex with that female rat. It didn't matter how (laughs) stressful he found it, he would still go ahead.
1: That's (laughs) funny. But then
0: what they found was if they kept putting the same male in with the same female, their stress levels went down, right? But the number of their brain cells as a result of that program of regular sex with a familiar partner went through the roof. It just monumental. So this was a an evolutionary important activity. We don't survive as a species, as humans, without sexual reproduction, right? This activity is not only good for how you feel and good for producing babies, it's also brilliant for the brain. So then, of course, my next question was, well, that's okay. Humans aren't mice or rats. So is there any evidence for that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing this with my fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. And uh, I came across a scientist called Mark Allen, this time in Australia, this uh, 2018. And he, he did an experiment, a survey, on uh, 6,000 people over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. And he found all those who had regular sex with a familiar partner had a 20% better memory than all those who did not which i found was absolutely monumental so i thought is there any more of this yes oxford university i mean these are not small wow. universities oxford university there are two scientists there and they found out that uh, your mathematical ability uh, as well as your memory uh performance on visual tests went up your fluency with words all improved in those people who are having regular sex And they did another experiment. I think this was uh, Lancaster University. This was a smaller sample of young female students. And -hmm. they found that of those young female students, all the ones who are having regular sex were better able to identify faces, put a name to faces, and also recall words. But it was the face thing to me. And I thought, why faces? Because faces carry meaning. Words don't necessarily mean anything to you, but a face means enormous amount. So the lesson appears to be the threshold for brain, a brain benefit from sex is, a, is once a week. That's the minimum. The, and it's a dose related effect. So the more sex you have, the more the benefit. Now, the, the $64,000 question, why? It's it's because of the feel good factor. That's one. So we have these hormones in the brain that um, just just go up in volume at, at the moment of orgasm and dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, all those massively increase in the brain during sex, but also two other things. Sex is social. There is a benefit if you have sex on your own, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Mm-hmm. but
0: there is a benefit from that, but it's nowhere near the benefit of having two people. So it's the eye to eye contact. it's the physical touching, it's the social experience. it's the fun, it's the it's the it's the it's the uh, elation of it, it's social experience. And the third explanation is, it's a form of exercise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in some cases, you have to be in, in decent yeah. physical shape to be able to perform, too. I mean, so. now, there's a
0: measurement scientists use called a MET, metabolic equivalent of task. Okay. So they measure how much energy all the tasks that there are in life require, and then they put a number mm. on it. Okay. So... Sitting down as you and I are, that's met level one. It's actually, to the scientists amongst you, 3.5 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of your body weight per minute that you're doing that task. That's one met. No if way. you're asleep, yeah that's cool. I didn't know yeah, this, so it, this is cool. If you if you're asleep, it's 0.9 of a met. If you're shopping, it's uh, 2.3. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're jogging it's uh, Uh, 7.7 if you're flat out a 4 minute mile it's 23, do you know what sex is?
1: (laughs) What What is
0: it? 5.5 for women and 6 with men so it's just as good as a slow jog just as good as a slow jog brisk jogging is 7ish You know, brisk sex is five to six. Now, the women might say that's unfair. Why are we 5.5 and the men are six? It's because of the um, physiological differences between men and women. And men have more lean body mass and less fat mass. And women have uh, less lean body mass and more fat mass. That is why. So men are using up more oxygen because they've got more muscle per minute. that's, That's all it is. It's an overlap. So... Make if sense. you got a female Olympic wrestler or a female um, uh, uh, one-mile uh, champion, four-minute miler, uh, okay, they, they'd probably be using up more oxygen than, than, than the men were. There's an overlap, but the average, the average is 5.5 and 6. So oh, yeah. it's the feel-good factor. It's the social part of it. And it's also the exercise element. Those are the three big reasons why sex is uh, it's great for you. I have had some people say, James, I'm getting on a bit in years. Uh, you know, um, I don't have a partner. Well, uh, bear in mind, there's no silver bullet for brain health. It's many things over many years of your life which gets you there. So mm-hmm. the fact that your sex life is not so good now compared to what it should be is not the end of the game, right? Uh, and also any kind of sex uh, will have a benefit for the brain. It's just that the gold standard is sex with a regular partner. Uh, the reason is because no matter how much the macho men think that sex with lots of different women is, is billions, every time it's a different partner, the stress level is higher than it would be with a familiar partner. That's the, nice. that's the fact. Of it. If you, if you yeah. objectively measured it, their heart rates will be higher. Their adrenaline will be higher. Uh, all, the, uh, all the features we associate with uh, stress will be present in a new date. You may not notice them. You may not notice them. Maybe that mm. adds a bit of an edge to it as well. Okay, But the overall bodily benefits from sex are better with, a, with someone you know.
1: Wow. Well, we know
0: relationships don't last forever. So there's always going to be a first time, isn't there? Relationships are made and broken. And we know that's going to happen. But the benefits come from the the, the, the stress-free nature of being in a close relationship with somebody.
1: Yeah, that trust has a lot to do with it, right? It
0: is trust. It absolutely is. Interesting. And of course, do you know, I suppose there's a... There's a, a fourth factor, uh, sex or, or the successful consummation of sex is hugely stress relieving, hugely stress relieving. So yeah. w- w- all the uh, inflammation in the body and all the adrenaline and that nervousness dissipates and subsides. So that, hmm. that stress reduction part of it is
1: really, really important. That's very true. And which... I know I did it in the wrong order here, but this connects me at least to the social aspect of the brain, where you talk about the sure. brain isn't an island, right? So can it is you, not. Can you touch on that? Because a lot of us a lot of us aren't aware that that we're designed to be social beings. Yeah.
0: People have asked me about this in relation to COVID, and they've said all this social isolation that was forced, forced on us. Every, almost every country in the world, some notable exceptions like Sweden, um, was that a good idea? And I've said, well, probably the people had the best intentions at the time because they wanted to flatten the curve. But if you ask me as a scientist before COVID to come up with a plan to damage the health of, of the nation, the United States, how to come up with lockdown. And, and I've said that and I don't care what the political narrative is about lockdown. It is hugely damaging. And for this reason, I mentioned earlier that uh, you can't unevolve what's evolved. We only survived as the dominant species on the planet because of teamwork. Uh, And that's because as a hunter, you would have starved to death. Most hunters would have starved to death on their own. You have to hunt in a team in order to be successful. And that successful hunting generated the food that people needed to develop their bodies and brains throughout the course of evolution. So this social cognition, as we call it, is wired deep in the brain. And when the loneliness light comes on in the car dashboard, that is something that we should take really, really seriously. Now, God bless Harvard, right? Great university. they did an experiment. It started in 1998. It involved more than 8,000 people. Mm-hmm. And they looked at their social lives. And they asked people to describe their social lives, their interactions with other people, the frequency of them, who it was. And uh, and, and the big box to tick was, are you lonely or not? <laughs> what do they mean by lonely? I feel really lonely to the point where i feel devastated and can't cope once a week that was the tick in the box got it and then they looked at their um they imaged their brains at the end of 12 years so this is no fly by night experiment Done in a test tube, five minutes in a laboratory. This was like serious stuff over 12 years, what we call a longitudinal study. And what they found was that all the people who ticked the loneliness box, their brains aged faster and their thinking skills declined more 20% than the others who said they were not lonely. That is wow. the devastating effect. They also measured, well, there's other researchers also measured the inflammatory molecules in their blood. When you're lonely, these inflammatory chemicals in the blood are massively high. So loneliness is really, really bad for you. It's as bad for you as water. We get thirsty. Bad for you as a lack of food. We get chronically hungry. So not having the company of people is just as important to our human health. Cognitive performance and the uh, risk of dementia as we get on through life is greatly affected by our uh, by our social lives. We're, we're social beings. One of our high court judges, Supreme Court judges in the United Kingdom, saying, "Make it making it a criminal offence to associate with others." In in light of the natural human condition, Mm -hmm. is plainly a wicked thing to do. That was Lord Sumpton. I I absolutely endorse that comment. and I don't want to bang on about lockdown and about COVID because we made lots of mistakes and it was a very bad part of human history. It's, mm-hmm. it's in my view, largely declined now because of science, because of vaccinations. And don't forget, getting the disease is actually the best vaccination. <laughs> it gives you better antibodies and protection than, than any shot in the arm. Okay? Um, I've lost my thread now, but what I'm trying to say to you is that that the things that we did in lockdown, it's easy to be critical of them, but the worst yeah. one is that is, is locking people down and depriving them of social activity.
1: Yeah, does, does virtual connection, kind of like what you and I are doing, talking, does that alleviate some of that lack of actual real social interaction?
0: To a degree, it does. Yes. And what I recommend to people is that by whatever means, if you are on your own, you can communicate with other people. Do it, whether it's old fashioned telephoning them or writing a letter, whether it's getting on social media, whether it's texting people, whether it's going on WhatsApp or Signal or uh, uh, any of these uh, means, do it, because Even if you could do it at a safe distance, talking to your neighbor over the fence is a great one. There was some research done at the British University, University of Essex, where a professor found that even the little things of life hugely uh, alleviate loneliness. What do I mean by the little things of life? You're walking down the street in Dallas, Texas, and you just nod hello to people. You may not even pass a word. You know, some parts of the world are more stuffy than others, you know the tube in the tube uh, underground railway in London is probably one of the worst places for social interaction. Nobody talks <laughs> to true. anybody. But That's anywhere true. else in the world, I've found Americans to be the friendliest people ever. You go almost anywhere and people will give you a howdy and a and a hello or a hi, even those little things. Even yeah. saying have a nice day. Now You know, that's parodied all over the world. But actually, saying have a nice day, if you mean it, is really, really good for you and really, really good for the people who's receiving it. These little social interactions make all the difference. It raises your self-esteem. It raises your confidence. It makes you feel better about yourself. It lowers your stress. It raises your well-being. Come on, Tristan, all these little things. And it's basic human courtesy and kindness. Where have we gone in life, you know? We need to be kinder to other people. We need to be friendlier to other people. It's part of how we were made.
1: Is anything produced internally? Is anything like, for instance, like when we're we're having sex, oxytocin is produced. But when we're being nice to each other, the person receiving that kindness, is there anything being produced in the brain? All of those things.
0: All of those feel-good hormones. All of them. So then the reverse is true. Right. Mm. So um, there are other hormones in the body which generate fear, um, anger, rage, loathing, disgust, repugnance, all these feelings. They come from hormones within the body as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm. uh, that is a good thing. All these negative feelings of feeling offended. People go on about feeling offended. No such thing in a free country. (laughs) right women women would never have had the vote if they hadn't have upset and totally hacked off all the men Mm -hmm. that's the fact of it all right but all those repugnant and and distasteful things are a necessary part of human psychology they protect us so when Mm. you fear something right unless you know you've got to go ahead with it and you overcome that fear most people will back away Right. It's fear is protective or it changes your behavior in such a way that you try and reduce the risk. right. So, yes, is the answer to your question. These these changes do go on all the time. Let Mm -hmm. me tell you how quick it is. I was once as a student on an exercise bicycle in a physiology laboratory in my university. And there were some tourists coming around. It was the summer. And these tourists from Sweden, and somebody walked in, and six newbile young women in shorts and T-shirts, and I was on the exercise bike, and my heart rate was resting went from 120 to 200 inside two seconds. B blah blah blah, blah, that. up it went. That is how quick those responses are within the body. So we are wow. a fluid dimension of moving emotions and reactions. And all of it is coming from this thing within our heads. And we need to look after it is
1: the, is the message. That's interesting, man, because I, I also see. So I'm active on social media, right? Because of the podcast and everything else that we do. Sure. And we, we can definitely see some people having a, a true challenge with what's happening on social with, when somebody disagrees or when they don't find something being to their liking. Uh, I can definitely see all of these feelings happening and emotions going through and hormones going crazy. So sure. um, is there any, any way to, to do a better job as humans to be able to regulate some of these so that we have a better, just a better hold of them?
0: Yeah, there is. I think um, it's all about balance in our lives. The three pillars of brain health, if you want to ask yourself how well your brain is doing, first of all, how well are you thinking? So that's your higher functions, you know, decision making, mathematical calculation, reasoning, logic. How well am I thinking? The second one is how well am I interacting how well am I? How rich is my social life? How well am I working with other people? Mm. <clears throat> those are that. Those are those two. The third one is emotional regulation. So how am I balancing across all of my life my negative and my positive emotions? Well, the way to do that is to improve your well-being and to reduce your stress. So across. Across our lives, we should be making sure that we have the good times and that we regulate the bad times. Now, wow. stress has got itself a bad name, Tristan. Right? Everybody needs stress. Mm-hmm. For some people, like uh, Luke Aitken, it's jumping out of an airplane. And he's not happy unless he's got that degree of stress. <laughs> For a lot of people, come on, you think of a disadvantaged, young, single person man or woman, in uh, poor economic circumstances, uh, looking after and bringing up a child on their own. For them, just getting through the day is just about as much stress as they can cope with. Other people like to do motocross. They like to surf. They like to deep dive into caves. They like to climb mountains or others just like to play a hard game of football, right? Everybody's got their safe stress level. What everyone should do, including me, is identify when that stress is too much. And then two things, move away from and reduce that level of stress. That's the first thing. And secondly, start to do things that make you feel good. And I go through in the book, things Mm. like mindfulness meditation yoga, yeah, those, Tristan. I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist, hard nailed, natural scientist. And I've always been skeptical about how, how is yoga good till I till I looked at the research. Yoga is one of the best things. Yeah. One of the best things for the brain, mindfulness, meditation, those artwork, what we call neuroaesthetics. Um a professor in university college london sammy azeki right has made a whole career out of uh studying empirical science the effect of art on the brain it even changes the circulation of the blood as we as we begin to admire and contemplate a work of art or we paint one ourselves the dynamics of the brain uh changes music I wrote an article for the BBC Music Magazine on uh, Mm -hmm. music and the brain. Music's embedded in human history. It goes back about 60, 64,000 years where the first musical instruments were made. Mm -hmm. They were found probably eight or nine years ago now, and they were made out of uh, the bones of an animal uh, or the tusks of uh, the mammoths, the larger animals, the elephants. Uh, But humans were making music. Music engages simultaneously more parts of the brain than any other single activity. It it changes our mood. It changes our perspective. It makes us different people. It raises the level of arousal. It generates the feel good hormones that we've been mentioning. Music is phenomenal. Now, not enough money has been given to so the musicologists, to study over a long period of time if music across our lives removes the risk or reduces the risk of dementia, we don't know that yet. My hmm. betting is uh, it's not going to do any damage. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's not going to do any damage, and it probably will do a, a great deal of uh, great deal of good.
1: So you're saying, yeah, music engages more parts of the brain than any other activity.
0: Simultaneously. Yeah. So the moment you start to hear music. Yeah, because uh, it generates arousal. So our level of uh, concentration and attention rises, Uh, a level of awareness rises. We feel better. It can also make you feel sad if it's sad music. So minor key, slow tempo equals negative mood. The opposite equals positive immune, right? So, so,
1: yeah, you're saying that if we have music that makes us feel great and we're having sex, that could be the ultimate thing.
0: That, that's two for the price of one, I'm telling <laughs> Just, you, uh, Tristan. But not only, not only that, how about this? If before you have sex and listen to music... You dance with that person and they speak another language that's going to be four for the price of
1: one no wait what about what, what have you what, have, what happens if you have a bowl of blueberries before
0: well you know that's your whole day nutrition thing isn't it so never have sex <laughs> on an empty stomach
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then after you have a glass of wine yeah
0: well, one before and one after that should two for the day, isn't it? There you it?
1: go. Dude, there this you is go. Perfect. This is yeah. We just ended it with the perfect routine there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is uh outstanding observation, uh just uh, should go down in the annals.
1: <laughs> we should start with that. We should lead with uh, that, James. That's hilarious.
0: Yeah, we should.
1: This is such a great interview, James. I'm going to see if I, I can connect you with a few other friends I have that sure. need to talk to you a hundred percent. Because we need to get everyone that we know has to read this book, even if it's Audible, because I listened to it on Audible and I read it. And this is the second time I'm reading it, actual reading.
0: Well, that's an interesting story. I read my own book in Audible.
1: Uh, That was you. I was wondering if that was, obviously, when you started talking. That was
0: me because Penguin Random House in London said, James, we've got Dr. Jonathan Sachs. Lined up to read your book. Now, Jonathan Mm -hmm. Sachs, he's got the brain the size of a planet. He's the chief rabbi of Britain. Uh, He has 10 PhDs, you know what I'm saying? He's just a brilliant guy, and he's got a great voice. And he reads books for Audible. And they said, we're going to get Jonathan Sachs. He's going to do it. And um, I said, no, I'll read my own book. (laughs) <laughs> I will read well, my own book. So be funny. careful what you ask for, because I had to take voice coaching lessons in order to read that book. Because I No thought, way. Yeah, yeah. I thought, do you know what? I'm going to be breathing wrong. I'm going to be stumbling over difficult to pronounce words, run together. I'm going to... yeah. So I phoned the London Voice School. This is in the middle of COVID. And the principal of all people answered the phone. Come on. And she said, uh, oh, that's an unusual request, but you're in luck. She said, at the moment, 100 percent of all the actors in Britain are unemployed because of COVID, (laughs) because the theaters are shut down. I'll get one of those to coach you. And she did. No way. Yeah. So I read my own uh, uh, audible book.
1: Mm -hmm. That's well, dude, you did an amazing job. I was wondering if that was you.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was quite difficult. Introducing Peggy Babcock. Peggy Babcock. Peggy Babcock. Is that what you had to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All that stuff and breathe in, count to ten, breathe out, count to fifteen. Just breathing. And I thought the breathing was like boring, but that was the that was the most part of it.
1: Did you have to do any tongue twisters like uh, besides the berry? I did. Okay.
0: Red lorry, yellow lorry, over and over again. Lorry is an English word for truck. Red truck doesn't do it. Red lorry does do it. Red lorry. Red yeah. lorry yellow lorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can't say that fast. That's fine. It's no, interesting. You, you,
0: you can't. Uh, and Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers. <laughs> that was another one.
1: <laughs> That's funny, man. That's still used. That's hilarious.
0: Yeah, but now, uh, um, Tristan, I found I'm getting asked to speak. Now COVID's been lifted, and I'm doing a big fundraiser in Broward County. The American Jewish Federation have asked me to go and speak there, and that will help them to raise hopefully tens of thousands of dollars. They'll sell the tickets. They're going to get a half-price book, hard Mm -hmm. copy from Pegasus Books in New York, my book. And uh, there's going to be some artwork auctioned off and there's going to be a VIP reception. So nice. I'm going to speak and I'll speak for I'll speak for half an hour and then they'll ask questions for half an hour. That's how it goes. So it, if sense. you if if there's any opportunity Justin, that you know about, give them my card. Tell I, them I'll, I and, will. And I'm in the US. I'm in the US all where, the time. Where
1: are you located? Where do you live?
0: I'm in England and I'm in a county in the southwest. Called Devonshire, and it's a tourist area of outstanding natural beauty. Uh, and we never get snow and ice down here. Uh, we are England's second most sunny county, and we have the second highest rainfall. So it's like living in cool Florida, if I can put that. Wow. Right. I have palm trees in my garden. No way. Devonshire. Yeah, it's okay. It's outstanding. We've also got the Lost World here. That's um, a, a prehistoric plateau, 3,000 feet high, 400 square miles, the last wilderness area in England. Oh, no way. God, I'm telling you. Yeah.
1: Okay, so when I go down to, to England or up to England, I'm yeah. going to visit Devonshire.
0: It's two hours by train, pick up a hire car, drive to Dartmoor, the wilderness area. Do you know, if Dartmoor, if Dartmoor was in the, in the U.S., Mm. right they'd make turn it into a resort
1: (laughs) it's just
0: so phenomenal and then off the coast we have got the skilly islands and they're like a little set of caribbean islands in the warm water coming across the atlantic from florida they've got white sand beaches turquoise water uh and and again they're not allowed to build on it so yeah you know god bless america you'd make a million turning it into a resort in Skilly <laughs> that's, but, true. Yeah. that's true that's <laughs> true those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today if you like what you're hearing drop us a review or just tell your friends this has been a success podcast head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it